going to be hard to focus after I spent time swaying with Wayne to the music a while ago. I enjoyed what, watching that happen. I can't get that image out of my mind. It's, yeah. Well, I need to cry. Well, <laughs> there's this competition in my mind between Wayne and Pat, so I just... <laughs> <laughs> it was close, but I, I think that's the way I'm <laughs> I have a short message this morning so that. Sometimes I think I'm the only person here that has the right definition of brevity. (laughs) (laughs) Got any more jokes? And we'll be able to focus. (laughs) Just sort of some comments about the the book of Revelation, rather than going into um, into the next one, you know, we've spoken about the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna, and I was going to talk about the church in Pergamum, but then I decided, no, that would maybe take longer than I wanted to take this morning. But in looking at the very early parts of the book of Revelation, we've seen the style that it was written in. It's called apocalyptic. And this is a a highly symbolic style of writing. And it was much more understood in Jewish culture back around the turn of the century when Christ was alive and before than it is today. And it was probably due in part to a lot of the apocryphal type books that were written from 200 B.C. until 100 A.D. Uh, A lot of them are very fanciful, and um, they're part of the Catholic Bible, but the only Protestant Bible that has the apocrypha in it now is the Anglican persuasion. And the reason, again, is you get things like in some of them where, as a child, Jesus creates a butterfly out of the dust and things of this nature, which are obviously just, you know, fantasy. Because even if something like that happened, it wouldn't happen because Jesus doesn't do frivolous things just for show. But part of the Apocrypha, um, people like Martin Luther saw some great value in some of it, probably in books like First or Second Maccabees, because it gives a history of what happened during the uh, Hasmonean re- re- revolt prior to Jesus, where the Jews took the country back from the the Alexander divided his kingdom between his generals, and one of his generals had the Palestine area. And anyway, they finally revolted. And so it gives a history of that. And then you find people like uh, Augustine that found value in some of the books of the Apocrypha. So it's a mixed bag. 
But again, today, our Bibles typically don't have it unless you find one that just has it as an addendum. Apocalyptic literature uses words in a distinctly symbolic fashion. We learn that angels and lampstands are churches and that the seven heads of the scarlet beast are not only seven hills, but they're also seven kings, and that the waters on which the great prostitute sits are people, multitudes, nations, and languages. Being aware of these interpretations help us to understand, help us in understanding when we read unusual sights in the book of Revelation about like a fiery mountain thrown into the sea a cloud of locusts with human faces and tails that sting like scorpions, a seven-headed, ten-horned beast that are rising from the sea. And if we interpret visions like this the same way we would in reading a newspaper, we'll get such a distorted view and a distorted understanding of what the book is all about that we'll just be a confused mess, and we're a confused mess the way it is, so we don't need any help with that. So, so how are we supposed to approach the book of Revelation? One scholar, uh, Robert Mounts, suggests that a way that we can be, that, that uh, a way Revelation can be a, a great help is to get a modern version of it Get a comfortable in our favorite chair and read the book thoughtfully from beginning to end. And he says this should take about an hour. I don't believe it. And it may be less, he says. Unless we stop to try to figure out some enigma, some baffling symbolism that we can't get past. He says just read it through quietly and... Um, Get to the end. He says, now put aside, put aside the Bible, take pen and paper, and jot down what impressed you as the major themes of the book. I will be surprised if you don't come up with at least the following. The sovereignty of God over forces, both natural and supernatural. The fierce antagonism of Satan and his demons toward the people of God. the return of Christ and his victory over the forces of evil, the judgment that will fall upon those who have followed the beast, and the everlasting blessedness of those who belong to the Lamb. He says there's more, but everything relates to these fundamental things. Revelation is a call to endurance. It's a call for endurance for people about to enter into a period of severe persecution. It counsels them to remain faithful to the end. And as history draws to a close, they're going to share in the victory of the Lamb, just like everyone else is looking for that victory day. You know, there's nothing left in scripture that has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back with the exception 
of the full gathering in of his saints. Nothing else has to happen. So that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for everybody to be gathered into the kingdom that God has ordained to be gathered. And when that happens, then the end comes. But nothing else. We don't have to wait for a a rebuilding of the temple or anything else. We're waiting for all the saints. And it's a good thing he waited this long because I wouldn't be here. And so many others that we're still praying for. In John's day, the persecution came from the Roman Empire. In the last days, the persecution is going to arise from totalitarian worldly authority with a select few and then ultimately one. And when the book of Revelation was written toward the end of the first century, for a lot of us around 90 AD, For a few of us around 70 AD, Mike, if you're part of the preterist persuasion, we won't go into that. Anyway, Christians at that time, during the, toward the end of the century, were facing brutal persecution in so many places. Numbers of people were being killed simply because they confessed Jesus as Lord and would not bow before the emperor. All the apostles except John had died a martyr's death. And John was in prison on an island off the coast of Turkey. We're told that John was the disciple that Jesus loved. And it's not that um, Jesus didn't love them all, but evidently there was a special relationship with John. But that love for John that was special did not mean a life apart from suffering. Rather, it meant following in the path of Jesus. And the path of Jesus was first the suffering and then the glory. And it's the same path he's called for everyone that follows him. This life is suffering. There are great joys in this life, but there's suffering in this life too. But first the suffering and then the glory, just like the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 27, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. You know, every day shows us that there are multitudes that are willing to forfeit their souls in exchange for pittances that evaporate quickly, last for a second. And we see it every day with people that are interested in fame or glory or power or prestige or whatever, and they don't know that they're forfeiting their soul. Today, like all days since the beginning, 
We see so many people trusting in everything but Jesus and things with no lasting value. Yet only Jesus has eternal life. He's the only one that gives eternal life. He says, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I've got the keys of death and Hades. For Jesus to be the first means that no one and nothing existed before him. John 1.3 says, what we're all familiar with, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in John 1.10 he says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Still the same thing. Then what does it mean for Jesus say to say he's also the last? Among other things, it means that Jesus Christ is also in charge of history. And before him, all people will have to give an account of their lives. First chapter of Revelation gives the longest physical description of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. All we know from the other scriptures bundle of facts. We know he's a man, and according to Isaiah, he had a beard. That's it. Oh, there's one other thing. We know that he had no form or comeliness that we would desire him. We, if we saw Jesus walking down the street, we wouldn't turn our head and take a second look. <coughs> According to Isaiah, he says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He wasn't a Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else. He wasn't even David, because Scripture tells us David was attractive, good-looking. They use the word ruddy, but it means good-looking. But Isaiah says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That's how John and the other disciples would have seen Jesus during his earthly incarnation. With the exception of the Mount of Transfiguration, where the veil was removed briefly. Matthew 17, 2 reads, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. That brief look. And then, of course, John probably was there when Jesus rose in the clouds. Probably thought he'd never see Jesus again until he died. But he would have been wrong because he sees him in the book of Revelation. But in Revelation, he sees a Jesus that's so different. In Revelation, John turns to see the voice that's speaking to him, and he sees one like a son of man, clothed with a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. John says his hair was white like wool, like snow, 
and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it glowed in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. His right hand held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His His face was like the sun shining in its strength. The general overall vision of Jesus is one of glory. His shining face is like that which John had seen on the Mount of Transfiguration we just talked about some years earlier. The golden band or sash was worn across the chest. If you look at some of the other visions, like in Daniel, there's a man with a goat with a sash, but it's around his waist. Elevated to the chest was a, a sign in the ancient world of great importance. And that's what Jesus, this is the emblem that he transposes on himself for John to see. It's an emblem of high rank. And then the long linen garment is a priestly garment. And white hair is the mark of age, honor, probably wisdom. And some have seen it as a mark of deity. God himself. And if you look at the description of the Ancient of Days, the Father, in the book of Daniel, the description is so much like that because the Father has white hair, white as snow, white as snow, white like wool. And here you see the Son with the same visage. In Daniel it says, there... I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. So you've got the Father and the Son. So many resemblances. And of course now these are symbolic. Just like so many things. You don't... When Jesus says, I'm the vine, nobody thinks Jesus is a vine. They don't think he looks like a vine or acts like a vine. It's, it's symbolic. And so many of these things in Revelation are the same way. Eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes that penetrate the hidden depths of a person, of a person's heart. We're not going to fool Jesus. There's no possibility. A voice like the sound of many waters represents inspiring power and majesty. A two-edged sword in his mouth represents a, a weapon of offense, cutting, slashing both ways. It points to stern action against anybody that opposes his will. And the total impact of the vision is a dazzling one. It's a terrible vision for the foes of the Lord. And this is the Lord that walks among the churches. The one who dictates the message to the seven churches in Turkey that he walks among. And it's a message that's meant for all the churches throughout the ages. 
And the message is one of commendation, praise, warning, discipline, and rebuke. And how he closes each one of the messages to the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to read these. We need to see what is praiseworthy to the Lord. And we need to see what he rebukes. And he calls us to repent, to turn away from, or to be sure that what we do is in keeping with what he commands. He says, otherwise I'll come and take your lampstand away from you. In other words, you won't be a church anymore. You may still exist. You may still meet. But Jesus won't be there walking in the midst of you. And so what kind of church is that? Sadly, it's like some we've got so many of. It's just by rote. It's form without any substance. Let's pray. Lord, there's no one like you. Lord, you've changed our lives. You've, you've given us hope. You've given us life. You've given us joy. All the things which, Lord, were just such a shadow or either non-existent in a life before with you, a life that anybody has without you. And, Lord, we're so saddened by the multitudes that don't know you. And we just pray, Lord, that you would begin to open eyes and soften hearts throughout this whole world. And there would be a great in-gathering, Lord, before the time comes for you to come back, Lord, bringing final gathering of your saints and final judgment to the lost. Lord, just increase the multitudes in heaven worshiping you. And we just pray, Lord, that our eyes would remain open and clear and our hearts soft and inviting. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.